Welcome. Welcome to the September Citizens Climate Lobby call. My name is Mark Reynolds. I'm a member of the CCL board and I'm hosting today's call. Let me make a pitch for uh, those of you who don't join the call 10 minutes early when the video starts. You'll find out amazing things about the Inflation Reduction Act, like it's longer than Harry Potter books. I did not know this, but now I do. I'm kind of excited about that. Um, also, there was a rigorous debate in the chat about what we were actually attending. Was it a call? Was it a webinar? So you missed out on all that if you don't uh, come in, in early. I also want to especially welcome those of you who are new. So let's say maybe you're from the Tulsa chapter uh, that started recently, or the two new chapters in Uganda, or maybe you're just new to a chapter. One of the things you're going to hear from our guest speaker, Hari Han, is the term radical hospitality during the call. One of the things that uh, Dr. Han does is she studies why social movements succeed or don't. And one of the things that she's done consistently for us over the years is to name something we've been working on. So we've always wanted to be an organization that practiced radical hospitality, but she had a way of naming it so it becomes more obvious to us. You know, there's a tradition in the Old Testament, the way you create something is by naming it. So we're thrilled to have uh, Dr. Han back again. I'll be introducing her in just a moment. Uh, because of her schedule with her family, we had to pre-record. So two weeks ago, our director, Madeline Perr, and I recorded the session. I think you're going to be really interested and excited to hear what you hear. After that, we'll go over some of the things that happened since last month's call. Oh, by the way, the biggest climate bill in the history of the planet. <laughs> you know, so some people talk about the IRA being the biggest climate bill in the history of the U.S. It's the biggest climate bill in the history of the planet. So congratulations to everybody. That's a really big deal. Uh, then we'll go over some of the things that you can do this month. I really love the options that are available this month. And then the last thing today is uh, last week, my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Dave Richter, completed his 10 years as the head of our government affairs. And I uh, just wanted a chance to say a couple things about him. So that's what's going to happen. What we'll start with is um, uh, hearing from Hari Han. Hari Han is a professor at uh, Johns Hopkins University. She teaches political science and is the inaugural director of the SNF Gora Institute, which strengthens global democracy through civic engagement and informed inclusive dialogue. Her most recent book is Prisms of the People, Power and Organizing in the 21st Century. So Ricky, can you run that please? I am so, so very happy to have you uh, back on the call with us and sharing the wonderful kinds of knowledge that you have about movement building and organizing. And I, I, lots of our folks are familiar with your work and, and for some they're new to it. So I'd love to just start with you talking about your work and what you study and also this idea of transformational organizing that I think is so critical for us. Sure. Um, so first of all, it's always really good to have the opportunity to talk with you all. And so I'm really excited to have this chance to um, to touch base. And so thank you for inviting me into the conversation. Um, so just to give a little bit of background on me. So um, I'm a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University. A lot of what I do is study movement building and collective action. And um, I, you know, I organize my work through a research lab called the P3 Lab, where we're trying to understand how you make the participation of ordinary people possible, probable, and powerful. Those are the three Ps. And so um, people have to be able to participate, they have to want to participate, and then it has to actually matter. And so a lot of the work that we do is partnering with grassroots organizations um, like CCL to put research um, around the work that you're doing to try to understand like what is more or less effective in in making people's participation possible, probable, and powerful um, in different ways. 
And through some of the earlier research that we've done, um, one of the things that we do, we um, develop is this distinction between the idea of transactional mobilizing and transformational organizing. And, um, you know, that that project kind of really grew out of a funny paradox that we were seeing with a lot of grassroots organizations in the 21st century, which is this idea that on the one hand, it's like easier than ever before to get people involved, right? It, it, it seems like you can get hundreds of thousands of people like out into the streets with like a really, with a really good viral tweet or a, you know, powerful Facebook post or something like that. But on the other hand, we were talking with a lot of organizers who are on the front lines and they were saying that they felt more powerless than ever before. And this is like 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, probably at this point. And so we wanted to understand, well, like, why is it? How is it that it can be on the one hand easier than ever before to get people involved? And on the other hand, it, the people who are doing the work on the front line feel like they're having less impact than they were um, in the past. And through that research is how we began to understand this distinction between transactional mobilizing and transformational organizing. Um, so the one the way to think about it is that mobilizing is essentially a search process of trying to identify people who are already agitated and looking for ways to get involved around an issue and matching them with opportunities for engagement. So, for example, there are a lot of people out there who, you know, after Trump got elected, were concerned and wanted to um, speak out against Trump. And so a woman in Hawaii created a Facebook post one night before she went to bed um, saying that we should have a women's march, you know, against Trump. And that post went viral. And then all of a sudden, you know, the day after Trump got inaugurated in 2017, we had the women's march, which at the time was the largest mass demonstration in American history, right? And that started with just a fact. And that was because there were so many people, there was an appetite and a desire for people wanting to be able to do something um, in response to that very contentious election that we had. So that's just mobilizing, right? They weren't necessarily moving people to a new place. They were just giving them an opportunity to get involved. And then it's almost like casting a net and capturing them. Um, what we found is that the organizations that are the most effective combine that kind of mobilizing with what we call transformational organizing. And organizing is really about um, transforming the interests and the skills and the capacities of people who didn't necessarily think of themselves as people who want to get involved around an issue. It might be because they don't understand the issue and they don't think it's important. It might be because they think, gosh, you know, doesn't seem like the weather is going um, in the directions that I want and I'm concerned about it, but what can I do, right? It might be if, if, because they feel like they're not really people who can make a difference. Um, it might be because they actually disagree with you. Like, I don't know, there's many, many reasons why people don't want to get involved. And organizing is a process of engaging with people to, um, understand and shape their interests and help them become architects of their own future. So help them develop the skills to engage with each other, to engage with people in positions of power, to engage decision makers, to be able to, um, you know, put their hands on the levers of change and, and work with others um, to help create, to help imagine and then create a vision of the world that they want. And so um, the most effective organizations that we were able, have been studying really combine both of those, right? Um, mobilizing helps you get to scale. It helps you, um, you know, get your name out into the media. It helps you kind of develop these sort of big events. But organizing is really kind of like the engine that drives um, a lot of a lot of the change work. That is so helpful, and we've been doing so much mobilizing uh, around the budget reconciliation process. So I think that rings home. For folks and, and when you talk about 
organizing being the engine. Um, can you can you say some more then about what organizing looks like? As yeah. To, so, as opposed to mobilizing. Yeah. Um, so um, there's a you know one of there's a famous community organizer and and one of my early mentors um, you know Marshall Gans at Harvard University and one of the things he talks about is that um, organizing this begins excuse me organizing begins with the process of um, identifying and developing leaders um, then creating community around those leaders and then drawing power from that community like that's the way he sort of describes what organizing is right and so he's using the term leader not in the conventional sense of you know this is the person who is the in charge of the organization right but a leader is someone who accepts the responsibility for enabling others to achieve shared purpose right and so um, part of what organizing is doing is kind of going into a community and trying to say who are the people um, that have the respect of other people in the community who are the people that are connected to others but that are concerned about what's going on and how can i get to know them um, and understand what their concerns are right and so if i were to reach out to you madeline it may not have been that the first thing you would say is oh i'm really concerned about climate you know at a certain point in your life perhaps and but I, you know, I'd say, hey, like, I, you know, I want to get to know you. I want to understand, you know, what the concerns are. And I might say, like, well, you know, I've got these kids in high school and I just feel like they're entering into this world that feels so uncertain. I'm really concerned about this thing and that thing. And, you know, a lot of people have these very um, concrete and personal concerns that they face in their own lives. And part of the process of organizing is beginning to sort of identify those interests help people see the connection between their interests and other issues or other concerns that other people in their community might have, and then helping them develop the skills that they need to begin to work with each other to imagine and think about, well, what are solutions that we can create together to these problems? You know, who are the people that we need to be having conversations with to be able to help solve the problems that we've identified in our lives and in our communities and, um, and so on? And that's really what that process of organizing is, is is um, I think there's a process. There's a process of like developing people's imagination, but also developing their skills, um, and then putting that together um, in a way that enables people to become, you know, agents of change as opposed to just consumers of, of change that someone else is creating. You you used the phrase a moment ago, architects of their own future, um, mm -hmm. which I'm going to steal and make my own and act like I was the one who came up with it. <laughs> but, um, could you just say a little bit about how you get people to have a greater sense of agency, particularly in the political process? Because I think you've shown some graphs and presentations of people feeling like they have less agency. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have in um, in American politics right now is that more and more people feel, you know, there's data that shows people feel less efficacy, people feel um, people feel like they're pawns in a game that someone else is controlling, you know? And so, you know, we've all heard all these exhortations to go out and vote and do things like that, which is of course really important. And I, and I encourage everyone to go out and vote, but I think there are a lot of people who also feel like, gosh, if the only way that I can have any influence is every two to four years to go out and cast a ballot for a few candidates, it feels like a very emaciated way of having voice in my, um, in, in my politics. And I think, the idea of becoming helping people become develop agency is helping them see the ways in which they don't have to just accept the choices that someone else constructs. They don't have to just um, accept, you know, feel like they're pawns in someone else's game, that they can actually begin to imagine and articulate 
a different set of choices that they want to put, you know, put in front of our elected officials. And so, you know, and, and because for most people, you know, you can't do that alone, you have to work with others that the first set of skills become, you know, is, is really about learning how to work with others in your community. It could be a geographic community, it could be a digital community, it can be all different kinds of communities to um, to begin to figure out what is that thing that we want to create together, right? What is what is that thing that we all feel like we're willing to put some effort into creating? And then once you figure that out, then how do we go about creating that, right? Like who are the people that we need to talk to to um, to, to to make that a reality, right? If it's if it's a carbon tax, then like who are the people that can make the decision around that, and how do I go and begin to have conversations with that them in a way that makes them listen, you know, and um, and so these are all kind of skills that are, that are learned over time. But first, people have to feel like they're actually able to be a part of that process in a way that I think right now most people don't feel like they can be. That was a great question, Mark, and really, really, really interesting. I, I, I've been reflecting on um, my early years of of starting chapters and going out into the community. Uh, and we tend to lead with a solution. Uh, mm -hmm. which I think I think we rightly recognize that that's better than leading with anger or uh, doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. uh, we would lead with a solution and then look for people that resonated with that solution. And then I think begin the leadership and training and support process that you talked yeah. about. So, I, so what do you think about that leading with a solution? So my, um, so I, there's two different things I would say to that. So the first thing is, is that um, my view is that when you think about the combination of mobilizing and organizing that we we're talking about that that make movements work, um, my sense on the mobilizing side is that anytime you're building a grassroots organization, you want to have lots of doors that enable people to walk through to become a part of your community, you know? And so for a lot of people who are um, overwhelmed by the sense of doom <laughs> that exists around, around climate in particular, I think having a solution, having, you know, someone talk to you that and, and leave with a solution is a really powerful and exciting opportunity. Um, but I think, you know, I think as, and so I think it's a smart way to um, bring people in, um, but, you know, as an organization, I think you want to have lots of other ways too. you know, like, like in, in um, you know, I've done a lot of work with um, evangelical megachurches. I think I've mentioned this to you in the past. And um, one of the things that I really learned from those megachurches, and, and these are churches that get like 30,000 people together every Sunday, you know, which is just a, a scale that's very different from any political organization that exists in America. And um, they have a real ethos of this idea that belonging comes before belief. You know, mm -hmm. so whether or not you believe in God, whether or not you believe in our God, whether or not you're evangelical, like all these kind of things, like you are a part of our community. Like they just welcome everyone in with this kind of sense of radical hospitality. And to me, that's the idea of having lots of doors open through which people can come and become and feel like they they belong in your community. And then what the churches sort of argue is that they're not trying to they're not trying to manipulate or hoodwink people. It's not like they're shy about the fact that they're a church, right? They're not hiding that from anybody. But they're saying like, look, you know, even if you're an atheist, you're welcome to be a part of our community. Now we, you know, we believe in God, we believe in, you know, the, this this set of things, and we're going to try to convince you that, um, you know, to to come and believe in our God. But you're still welcome part of our community, even if you don't, 
agree with us, you know? And so that's the kind of ethos that underlies the kind of belonging comes before belief. And I think there's something really powerful to that, that, um, you know, what the data shows is that often people's beliefs evolve um, as a function of their sense of belonging in a community. And that's true not only in faith-based communities, but also in political organizations as well. So, so it's a, it's a long way of saying that I think that um, leading with a solution is, is is great, but I think the kind of bigger challenge for the organization is how can we create the sense of belonging that allows people to kind of enter into the organization through lots of different kinds of doorways. Um, such a such a powerful phrase, radical hospitality. Um, yeah. One of the needles that we try to thread is how do we make this a safe place for conservatives to participate? Mm -hmm. At the same time, how do we make it a safe place for people who are in marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, those things seem at odds with each other, uh, but we're committed to solving that. And I, I, I don't think we have. Do you, Madeline? Well, it's a work in progress. <laughs> it's a work in progress. But do you have any advice or insight on that? Like, but I just, I love the term. I think we're going to adopt this notion of radical hospitality. Uh, I think it's something that we've tried to do as an organization, but I think naming it that particular way even gives it more power. Yeah. Um, so, so I have a couple thoughts about this question of like, how do you, you know, and, and one of this is sort of like academic term that I would put on what you're saying is like, how do you build kind of bridging capital and not just bonding capital, you know? And so um, in the literature on social capital, there's a kind of distinction that scholars make between bridging capital and bonding capital. And so bonding capital is creating thick bonds and ties between people who are like you and bridging capital is, is about creating those kind of ties with people who are not like you, you know? And movements in order to get to scale have to have bridging capital just by definition, right? Because no matter how you define yourself, you know, at some point you will have to bridge beyond that sort of initial demographic, whatever it is, or, or geographic group or whatever you want to call it, you know? And so the challenge of how you create bridging capital is, is, is particularly challenging in this political moment that we're in because of high rates of polarization, um, because of the ways in which um, identi political identities have come to become um, such powerful forces in our politics and, and so on. So I think creating that bridging capital is even harder now than it may have been, you know, 30 years ago or, or something like that. And the thing that I will say is, so there's there's no formula <laughs> for creating it. Um, I think in the end, it, ha it comes down to having authentic relationships, you know, mm -hmm. so it's really hard to create bridging capital in the abstract, you know, to sort of say, hey, hey, like, we welcome everybody. And you can lots of people say that, but then when actual people who are different than you come into the organization, there's not actually that sense of well, you know, so in the end, it comes down to what is the experience that people have and the authenticity of the relationship they create. But one thing that I will say that I've seen organizations that have been more successful at doing this than others is um, there's a way in which the kind of structural units that they create um, enable the cultivation of bridging capital when you have groups that have different levels of power in society in the ways that you are describing. And um, the the way to think about that is um, I, there's one organization I've worked with that sort of uses this metaphor of the house which is the idea, or like an apartment building, sorry, it's better metaphor, is, is, is what they're saying, is that like in an apartment building, we all have our own apartments and we take care of our apartment and that's our responsibility, but then we also have a lobby and we have like a courtyard and we have the elevator and we have these other spaces that are shared that we all have to take care of together. And very often in communities where you have groups that come in with different levels of, of, of power, of, 
marginalization of, of so on and so forth, you want to kind of create that apartment building where, you know, there is space for women to bond with other women for, um, you know, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds to have their own apartment with people from a lower so, or conservatives to bond with other conservatives. Like they need that space to kind of connect with each other to create the kind of bonding capital that's important for them to feel um, like they can bring their whole selves and the, and the sense of their identity um, into the work. Um, but then, you know, when you live in an apartment building, you just don't, you don't have just your apartment. You also have the lobby, you have the community room, you have the, the courtyard that you all take care of together. And, and how do you create the kind of structural units within the organization that enable both that bonding and that those bridging spaces um, to emerge? And so I think that in the organizations I've seen that are most successful at doing that, they they use different kind of structural units um, to enable that. And so one example that I'll give just because we were talking about this just a minute ago is so in these evangelical megachurches, um, what's one of these structural units that's very common in churches is what's called small groups. And so these are churches that, you know, they have 30,000 people that come together every weekend. And so obviously there's no way that I'm going to know like all 29,000 other, you know, congregants that are in my community. And so the vast majority of people who are part of these churches are also part of a small group. And a small group could be organized around, you know, people without kids who live on the West side, people who want to play tennis on Saturdays, people who want to do a Bible study, you know, people who just retired. Like, I don't know, there's like any range of different things that you can imagine that would bring people together. And they're, they're small groups of like maybe eight to 10 to 15 kind of people and they're self-governing, self-organized groups. So there's not like a staff member who runs it, but they, they run their own Bible study or they run their own, you know, and like there might be a guide that helps them or something like that. But what that means is that they have a space where they can choose who the other people are that they want to be with. Um, it's self-governing so that they can um, kind of, you know, they, anyone who's a part of it has, has voice in shaping what direction it goes. And so in moments when, you know, in some of the research that I've done, in, in moments when people are upset with something that the bigger church did, let's say, you know, they could sort of say like, forget it, I'm out of here. Like this church doesn't stand for what I believe in, but it's a small group that keeps them there because a small group is a place where they have real real relationships with people that they really care about. But then also they could they might say, hey, I disagree with this thing that the pastor said on Sunday, but in my small group, here's a group of people that I feel like I have, I can really, you know, that really understand where I'm coming from. And that, you know, in some cases really agree with me, in some cases don't really agree with me, but but at least like I can have this like authentic, deep, you know, relationship and, and conversation with about this issue that that we're all grappling with. And so having those kind of structural units where people feel like they're really shaping the direction of that unit is really important in enabling that kind of bridging capital to emerge. Hmm. That was a really long answer. I'm really sorry. I, I, really I, can, I can relate to that in terms of my CCL chapter, and I can relate to that in terms of my own church experience where the, the uh, 1115 choir is my small group. And the sense of belonging is very strong there. And that pulls me through at times when I'm not so happy with the hierarchy. Yep. And it's that's a very common kind of thing that yeah. we see not only in church faith, faith-based communities, but also in other kinds of communities. But very often we don't see that in the kind of grassroots or political organizations that um, you know, yeah. that exist yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Um we could go this way a long way, but I want to talk about the pandemic. Can we talk about the pandemic sure. a little bit? Yeah. yeah. Um so uh, we, you know, it's been two and a half years and, um, we've done an amazing job, I believe of, of using zoom and, and connecting that way. And, and still it's rough, 
you know, yeah. and, and it's, you know, that, that relational sense and sense of belonging is so much harder to do on Zoom. So I, I'm just curious what you've seen about the pandemic's effect on this kind of um, transformational organizing and, and what, who's been most successful with it and how, and yeah. And then of course there's looking forward. Could you predict the future for us? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. Um, I mean, I will say, I think there's been like huge opportunity that's been created because people, you know, now it's like, think of the numbers of people that are comfortable getting on a Zoom meeting, um, you know, that far exceeds the numbers of people that are comfortable doing that prior to the pandemic. And so that enables us to reach people um, that that we weren't able to to reach before. But I think that it's also true that what we're seeing is that a lot of um you know there's there's a couple there's a couple trends that are kind of moving in parallel to each other that it's hard to predict how they're going to shake out so on the one hand people have a greater comfort with the technology and that's that's enabled like greater reach in the ways that we talked about on the other hand people are starting to feel fatigue with the technology you know and so it's hard to know how how those two um the kind of convenience um, factor that arises with the technology relative to the sort of Zoom fatigue that people have, like how those um, patterns are going to um, run in parallel to each other. Um, and I think, you know, this is, you know, potentially like not a very creative answer, but I will say, you know, the, the patterns that we're seeing among grassroots organizations is that is not that different than the patterns that we're seeing before is that the organizations that did deep work prior to the pandemic are continuing to do deep work with technology, you know, during the pandemic and the organizations that are struggled with it before are still considered struggling with it after, you know, and so I think my kind of gut instinct around this, but again, it's still hard to know exactly where the data is going to go, is that it's not so much the technology that governs the ability of organizations to do the kind of transformational organizing that we're that we're talking about, but it's really more a sense of their own commitment to it and their their willingness to to figure it out, you know, um, that the Zoom format does create different challenges that in-person formats did not, but that, but it's also true in reverse, you know, in-person formats create a different kind of set of challenges that um, the, the Zoom format mitigates. And so you always have those challenges. And I think it's really a question of, do you want to do the work that's deep or shallow? And if you want to do the work that's deep, then how do you make best use of whatever format you have before you? And who do you do you have examples of people succeeding really well at the deep work? Um, you, you mean on during the pandemic and and over Zoom? Yeah, and 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 coming out of it. And coming out of it. I, I'm I'm optimistically figuring we're coming out of it. We are some. We are you know, well, more than halfway out of it. Let's let's go out on a limb there. Um. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think. Um. I mean, so I think there's a lot of organizations that I don't. D don't necessarily know. Um, you know, I think a lot of churches have have been. I mean, we, you know, I feel like we have this theme, but just because we start talking about it now, it's like on my mind. But I think there have been a lot of churches that really are have been really creative with how they've used some combination of both online and offline formats um, to engage their community um, through the pandemic and now coming out of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think you know there's a digital first organization, the largest um, black led digital first organization in the country is called Color of Change. And um, they have, you know, they are a digital first organization, but they also have like offline components. And I think they've been really thoughtful throughout the pandemic and and, and now and thinking about how they combine the online offline experience um, for people to enable them to um, 
to engage in, in a range of different ways. And so I think there are examples of organizations that are being really creative um, with that work and, and, and able to kind of continue to fulfill their mission. Um, Hari, could you just take a minute to say a little bit about your most recent book? Because I, I, I know that people are just going to absorb every single minute of this call, but are going to want ways of getting more. Yeah, so um, two of my colleagues, Elizabeth McKenna and Michelle Oyokawa and I um, had a book that came out last year. It's called Prisons of the People. And um, what we were doing in that book is we were really trying to study, um, you know, six um, organizations that have basically broken the trend that we were talking about before, which is that so often nowadays you see this gap between the ability of organizations to gather people together for action and then their ability to actually have an impact. And we wanted to sort of say, what if we were to study the outliers, <laughs> you know, and, and there's all this data that supports that there's like a general trend around that, you know. So we said, what if we were able to study the outliers and say, let's look at the organizations that actually were able to break through. Is there, are there any commonalities across them, you know, and, and then the null hypothesis in a way is that there are no commonalities, right, that they all were lucky in some way, that they're all idiosyncratic um, in some way, but we found that there actually were commonalities that had to do with the ways in which they um, organize themselves for transformational organizing, the ways that they invested in a set of strategic capacities that enable them to navigate the inevitable kind of political uncertainties that would come their way. And so that idea of investing in strategic capacity to navigate political uncertainty is, is part of how we unpack what we unpack in the book through these case studies. Wow. Okay, I'm reading it. <laughs> uh, Hari, I just, you know, um, it's always so inspiring when we talk to you and, uh, uh, and you seem so passionate about your work. Um, where, what's the origin of that passion? What, what drives you to, to, to push yourself in such interesting ways in your work? Um, you know, it's interesting. So I grew up in Texas, um, and I was a daughter of Korean immigrants, and um, I grew up in a family that was very apolitical, <laughs> you know, so like politics was not something I thought about or talked about at the dinner table. It wasn't something that I thought that I would ever be interested in. And um, I got involved in student organizing in college, and that's what sort of opened my eyes to um, this world of, of politics. But I think what what really spoke to me when I first had that experience in college was um, this idea that you know, I, but like there really, there is a gap between the world as it is and the world as I think it should be, you know, and I experienced that as a kid. And as a kid, I just felt like, well, it's just sort of the way things are and I just have to put up with it. But then having the experience of being part of an effort with other people to try to change and, and, and realize the world that, that we wanted is I think once you have that experience, it's really hard to walk away from it. You know, there's just a real kind of joy and power and effervescence in it that um, that, that I haven't seen in, in other places. And so that's what really got me interested in trying to understand and make sense of and, and study it um, in a way that hopefully is able to kind of support other people, who other organizations and, and people who are doing that work to, to strengthen their practice. Uh, Madeline, we're almost out of time. Is there anything else that you wanted to make sure we got to in this session? Um, this has been great. I'm just looking ahead and interested in any advice on organizing or strategy that you might have from, from your background and experience as we navigate 
um, having had a victory in Congress, uh, a significant victory that we worked long and hard for, and uh, sometimes uh, political leaders decide, okay, we're done with that. You know, we, we've done it. You know, and, and how to keep the appetite going forward and and continue to build that power that it's going to take to push Congress to take the next steps and the next steps that mm -hmm. are before us, because that's that's our next challenge. Yeah. So I will say um, I do think this is a really um, it's a both pivotal and per potentially precarious moment for the organization, because um, the data does show that people are driven people are more driven naturally by a sense of threat than a sense of opportunity, you know? And so um, when people feel like there's a sense of threat, it drives all this instinctive kind of mobilizing action um, that we're talking about. And when people feel like, oh, well, that problem's been taken care of, then it becomes harder to kind of get people engaged or keep people engaged. And so um, I think there is a real moment for the organization to be able to think about how can it capitalize on this opportunity. You know, the data also shows on the policymaking side that when you have these moments of opportunity, they can build on each other um, if you can keep the momentum up, you know. And so so the question is, how does CCL as an organization do that um, when there might be people who are kind of thinking, oh, well, we, we've gotten this big victory. We can kind of like take a breath for for a little while. And. I think in, you know, I don't, again, there's not a formulaic answer to this. Um, I think in my experience, a lot of it kind of gets back to this question that I think we've talked about in some of our previous conversations, which is, you know, organizations that start with this question of um, who are my people versus what is my issue are very different kinds of organizations. And when you have a clear sense of who your people are and what their needs are, then everything builds from there, you know? And so in a sense, it feels like I think um, there is this real moment of, of a victory that should be celebrated, but at the same time, we know that your people, you know, the people who are part of this organization, still there still is a real gap between where we are and where we need to be, you know? And so how can you engage people in a process that articulates that and then creates a plan moving forward that people feel bought into? So participation in articulating that plan and having a plan is what I think I took away from that. Yeah, I think yeah, engaging people and making the and 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 feeling like they're they're helping to develop that next phase of strategy, I think, is really important. Thank you. Any last questions from you, Mark? No, I'm just blown away again. Thank you so much, Ari. Oh, <laughs> so to lucky to, yeah, so lucky to have you as a resource and as a as an ally. Yeah. Well, it's really fun for me too. So thank you for inviting me and giving me this opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.